Hello, I'm Vershawn Young, your host for this installment of New Books in African American Studies, the interview series where writers of African American life, arts, culture, and sciences discuss their new books. Today, I'll be speaking with Andrea Williams, who is an associate professor of English at The Ohio State University. She has written a provocative new book on African American class divisions. It is called Dividing Lines, Social Class Anxiety, and Postbellum Fiction. It is published by the University of Michigan Press this year in 2013. Williams' book examines how late 19th century black authors represent intra-racial stratification and class mobility. Analyzing works by such authors as Francis Hopper, Sutton Griggs, Paul Lawrence Dunbar, and Charles Chestnut, Andrea Williams casts doubt on the now too easy distinction between the sellout and the black nationalist. What she does is historicize the first moment when blacks were seeking to compete in the mainstream after slavery. Her look at representations of class at the turn of the 20th century is fresh and illuminating. Please listen in to our lively exchange. Hi, Andrea. Hi, Rashawn. Today we are speaking with Andrea Williams, who is the author of an exciting and provocative new book on class and race. Her book is called Dividing Lines, Class Anxiety and Postbellum Black Fiction. It's published by the University of Michigan Press in its prestigious class culture series, and it just came out this year. And so we're very excited to be one of the first ones to talk to Andrea about her book. Dividing Lines is an extensive study of class in 19th century African-American literature. Critics call this book clear and engaging in the fact that it unveils how black fiction writers represented the uneasy relationship between class, racial solidarity, and the quest for civil rights in black communities. Andrea Williams is an associate professor in the English department at The Ohio State University, and we welcome her to New Books in African American Studies. Andrea, can you begin by telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I grew up in Marlin, Texas, which is a town of maybe about 6,000 people in central Texas. It's two to three hours from all the major cities like Dallas and Houston and Austin, right in the heart of Texas. And from there, I went to college at Spelman College, which is a historically black college for women in Atlanta. It's one of only two. The other is Bennett College in uh, North Carolina. And I always credit my transition to Spelman as opening my eyes to class differences among African Americans. I think that coming from my small town, it was too easy to have very dualist or binary understandings of race and class and their conflation to say most black people are poor, most white people are rich. And it just was so much more complex than that going to Spelman. Part of that was because being in a population where almost all of the students were of African descent of some sort, and then two, all of us were women, it was almost as though those particular factors were neutralized, hmm. and yet there was so much still diversity among us. So those were the first times, for example, that I started to recognize myself as a Southerner uh, by having a roommate from the Bronx and getting the sense 
sense of regional differences between us. Those were times where I was aware of religious differences between people. And also I would mention then the kinds of class differences that exist among African Americans. I think um, that there were a couple of class markers that stood out to me in terms of students who had been attending or their families had been attending college for generations as, a per, as opposed to being a first-generation college student. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, too, that there were uh, ways that I saw a longer kind of lineage or tradition of what in the period that I now study was called racial uplift, this uh, initiative to want to think about how middle-class African Americans could contribute to their communities and to social justice, but sometimes in ways that necessarily depended on and exacerbated those class differences from working class people. So I think that, for example, black sororities are very much invested in the sense of social justice and of community outreach, but that implicit within that kind of outreach is the very reality of class differences and inequalities, material differences. Um, The geography of Spelman, for example, in southwest Atlanta was very aware of that and thinking about how to reach out to low-income neighborhoods that were just a little bit outside of the gates of our school. Um, And so I think that in that way, the kind of opening of my eyes really helped for me to think about those issues. So I would say those kind of personal observations or social observations were also mirrored in my studies uh, as an English major. Many of the books that we would read, things like Alice Walker's The Color Purple mm-hmm. or Gloria Naylor's Women of Brewster Place, and people may remember that best actually from the TV adaptation with Oprah Winfrey, um, in which women are living in a low-income neighborhood and really thinking about how to draw on their um, communalism, their sisterhood to thrive and to survive there. Um, and yet I thought that those representations were not akin to or did not reflect much of the student population that I saw around me. Um, girls who were going off to Paris on spring break or who were donating their time during spring break um, to build neighborhoods and so on. And so I thought about, well, how can we align or rather what have critics already done to align? What have authors already done to think about? this relationship between what is often a kind of iconic black suffering versus a black middle class experience. Mm -hmm. Um, And I started to realize that it wasn't only that I was maybe asking the wrong questions, but that I was also looking in some of the wrong places so that I needed to think not only of Gloria Naylor's Women of Brewster Place, but I need to think of her work on Lyndon Heels, which is a work that has more centrally middle class characters and to think about what are the kind of internal and familial angst that uh, is going on there. to look not only at Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye, in which a working class um, girl growing up has this desire for blue eyes, which is only one signifier of a kind of 
social and economic privilege that she associates with white privilege, um, I needed to also look at Morrison's The Song of Solomon, where, or jazz, in thinking mm-hmm. about upwardly mobile characters and what their tense or uh, admirable relationships with larger black communities were. So again, um, both intellectually and socially, those kinds of questions that I pursued there at Spelman really provided a background for carrying this interest into class and representation into my work. So uh, going uh, off what you just said, a number of the texts that you just mentioned are um, late 20th century uh, novels and, and short stories. So why are you focusing on 19th century? Well, I wanted to look back to think about how far back we could possibly trace these issues of the kind of contention about whether uh, the so-called dirty laundry of disunity within the black community um, had been aired. And certainly it would have been possible even to look back to the antebellum period. I know that um, much of the scholarship now is starting to think about how we need to complicate the idea that even the period of slavery necessarily meant that all African Americans were slaves. But one of the reasons that the postbellum period is so um, interesting for me is that we're starting to have more generations, and including some of the first generations, out of slavery who are thinking about how to even start thinking through ideas of class difference. So that the kind of classifiers of slave or free needed to be complicated. How do you have um, or identify someone who was formerly a slave but now owns a major business but still doesn't have a college education? Where would you really place that person in 1880 or in 1890? So again, I think that um, I wanted to look back through a number of, of different historical periods to find, uh, if not the locus, at least one of those uh, pivotal historical moments when these questions uh, were at the fore. And certainly that was the late 19th century period, especially the period around the codification of Jim Crow as African Americans are busy in trying to think about what are other political and cultural means that could be taken to challenge Jim Crow to challenge segregation and second-class citizenship for African Americans. And in your response, you just used one of the two key terms in your subtitle, post-bellum, as an adjective for black fiction. Uh, Can you tell us what post-bellum means? Um, Throughout much of American literature, and I would say African American too, um, there has been a use of martial or military uh, deadlines or dates to differentiate the time period. So using something like antebellum as referring to the period before the Civil War as opposed to postbellum as the period afterwards. Mm -hmm. Um, Many anthologies these days, for example, have the interwar period between the First World War and the Second World War. And certainly there have been some challenges to this idea of thinking about whether or not military markers should help for us to identify the way that literature progresses well. But in this case, I think that it's apt because 
African-American writers were often thinking about being, as I said, right in this period of time, even 10 to 20 to 30 years after the Civil War, where that was still the big marker in thinking about what um, importantly had happened in American history and in African-American history towards emancipation. So postbellum in that regards refers to the period after the Civil War, I would say through the turn of the 20th century, and some people would say right up until about the First World War. Very nice. And so now let's get into some of the meat of the book, because this is a really, really rich and wonderful book. I enjoy reading it. Um, I'm actually teaching parts of it uh, as well. And uh, so I, I really want uh, our listeners to get a lot from this discussion. Your book begins <laughs> with uh, an exemplary instance of um, class anxiety, as you, as you uh, term it, with this private letter um, that uh, Addie Jewell sends to one of her friends, talking about one of the texts that you um, analyze, Contending Forces, Pauline Hopkins' Contending Forces. Can you tell us about class anxiety as it's represented both in nonfiction texts like um, Jewel's Letter and in the fiction that you read, uh, such as uh, Hopkins' Contending Forces? Um, one of the things that I appreciate about um, the work that I did in actually researching the book is that I wanted to start to think about this is a conversation between writers and their audiences over representation, over what should be the public face of African-American communities. And so in the Addie Jewell letter, which is housed at the Schomburg Center for Black um, Study in New York, I really identified that early uh, in my project and thought this would be perfect for the opening. There, Addie Jewell has gone to a book reading and was able to hear Pauline Hopkins talk a little bit about her new work, and Jewel was actually a little nervous about the representations within that text and how Hopkins may have been pointing up class animosities between working class and middle class African Americans. And so Jewel, in her letter to another black American, uh, raised her own anxieties, raised her own concerns about what's going to happen when this book is published, what's going to happen if other people start to see that we are discriminating among ourselves in our own communities, will that give them some sense that they can do the same thing to us? Um, and so what I really gleaned from that text is that, again, the sense of what I'm calling class anxiety is shared between authors and their readers, and sometimes it's volleyed back and forth in letters to the editors, and then in serialized text in which an author can, and by serialized I mean that individual chapters of a novel might have been published in a magazine chapter by chapter or two or three chapters at a time, so that there was time in between the publication of those individual chapters that people could get together in groups and read aloud and say, well, what do you think about that character? Well, I don't know. I, I really didn't like that character. Why does she act like that? Or she thinks she's too good just because she's light-skinned. So 
these were the kinds of conversations that I was identifying in letters, in um, editorials, um, in newspapers such as the Colored American Magazine or in the Washington Bee in Washington, D.C., uh, that were really showing up this kind of sense of angst about what the proper representation should be. Um, throughout my book, then, what I mean by class representation and particularly class anxiety is the sense of uneasiness over a potential loss of status, over class disparities, or over a sudden change in condition for better or for worse. So in Jules' uh, part, which I'll share with you by reading a little bit later, you could really see that she was concerned over how class disparities should or should not make their way onto the pages of African-American fiction. Mm-hmm. I'm glad that you uh, raised that point about um a class as something uh, as an increase or decrease in uh, status and sometimes quite suddenly uh, because you read several texts in which that kind of um, in which that sort of thing happens especially in um, Harper's Iola Leroy um, and some others can you talk about um, uh, class anxiety in um, any one of the novels that uh, that you read and how um, and how it's represented and the complications of that representation um, I think about class anxiety in three additional ways that I elucidate throughout the book. And these are the concepts of the fear of misclassification, a fear of estrangement, and a fear of downward mobility. And I'll tell you a little about each. Um, the fear of misclassification is probably the uh, most prominent one in many of the texts that I examine, uh, and I'm being a little playful with the language there in misclassification in suggesting that <laughs> as we go through our days, we're often classifying people based on our first impression. But uh, the African-American readers or writers were uh, concerned that people would do it wrong, that they would classify wrongly, that they would misclassify. So this ends up being a kind of defensive concern over being characterized um, in an unfavorable class. And I say that it's something akin to being called out of your name, something akin to being called derogatorily um, out of one's name. Mm-hmm. One of the kinds of ways that this takes form in the fiction is that I noted that there were these long passages within individual novels where characters are having disagreements over what's the exact language or terminology that they should use in referring to other people in the community. Should you say that this person is rich or are they well off or are they better class or are they middle class? Um, All of these different words have um, certain connotations associated with them. And so I think that previous even readers or scholars have looked at these passages and said, why did they go off on these tangents? This is just so didactic. This is so pedagogical. We're ready to get to the action. And instead, there are these long speeches in the text about, who are you calling rich? I'm not rich. Who are you calling poor? You're the one who's poor. Um, And so I thought of those as really serving more of a function within those texts than simply um, being... uh, 
derivative or being a tangent, that they were really the central uh, central part of educating readers about how to have these conversations about class. And so I see those uh, kind of elaborate dialogues, for example, sometimes going for several pages uh, with abrupt transitions back to the rest of the plot as really showing these kinds of fears of misclassification. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And something like Iola Leroy, that ends up happening because the titular character, Iola, starts her life beginning that she, um, or, or believing that she is the fully white heir of the plantation owner who is um, her father. And after her death, she instead finds that her mother has some African descent and that they are instead the legal property of their father and husband as slaves. Um, Iola then is is um, privy to, or rather relegated to, I should say, um, to slavery. And so there's this really dizzying transition from her, for her mm-hmm. from being the mistress of the plantation and sent off to boarding school to now being just about to be put on the auction block, so it seems, unless someone can intervene for her. And so those kinds of moments cause real anxiety in the characters about what's going to happen to me now that my racial status has changed in some way, but more likely that the class status has changed. The very privilege has been um, switched from her. Um, But I would say, too, that this also happens in the other direction, that characters who experience a certain kind of upward mobility are wondering how do they get along with old money if they're the new money? How do they show that they have this new cultural capital and certain manners that go along with the possession of goods or with cultural consumption? Uh, And then there's uh, a certain anxiety about that as well, about how does one perform out the role of, of now having money or now having this opportunity? Mm -hmm. And the authors that you um, discuss uh, use different ways of representing class. How would you um, uh, describe the way uh, Sutton Griggs uh, represents class from the way, say, Charles Chestnut represents class? Well, I would say, first of all, that one of the probably most prominent ways that class um, is addressed in many of the texts has to do with skin color. And that was something that in uh, my uh, working on the book, I noted that I needed to go out and get, um, I needed to go on and get out in the forefront and address the issues of colorism that were at play so that lighter skin signifies certain kinds of class uh, distinctions as opposed to darker skin, which was associated with a heritage of servitude or bondage. And so I would say that that particularly comes out in Chestnut's stories. Chestnut was a writer born um, in 1858, was freeborn, lived his life in Cleveland and in North Carolina for most of his life. Um, and although he never really chose to pass, um, and he's recently had a, a postage stamp, I think, over the last few years, um, in which the visual conveys how much that his body could signify in either way, that it could have been red as white or as black. 
Um, and he was especially interested in thinking about based on those kinds of the ways that the very body itself is an unstable or unreliable sign of what your race is, why then should people be basing privilege on race at all? So for him, he was very much interested in these characters who were, as he called, blue veins, those who were light enough that their blue veins could show through their skin color. Um, and in that way, thinking about the class privileges that were denied African Americans on a whole, but that seemed especially burdensome to lighter skinned African Americans who, by simply having their bodies understood differently, might have been privy to all these other kinds of privileges. Um, Griggs is, by contrast, less interested in issues of colorism, or at least he wants to tackle those a little bit more. Sudden Griggs was born in 1872. He was a Baptist minister who published five novels within a period of about eight or nine years. And he's notable as well because he actually owned his own publishing companies and was able to then uh, control what the circulation of his works might have been instead of turning to some of the mass media or other venues during that time period. In a work like his second book called Overshadowed from 1901 that I study in uh, Divining Minds, Griggs is interested in how labor and occupation counts as one of the signs of what a person's class could be. And this opens up opportunities for him to think about what the social status of particular occupations is, the difference between manual labor versus intellectual labor, or what we now might think of as white-collar jobs. But he's also thinking about whether or not those distinctions should really apply in African-American communities that are so vulnerable to hiring discrimination or to segregation. Can we afford to say in a 19th century black community Community, that doctors have a certain kind of privilege or that clerks have a kind of privilege when they are often being, when those African Americans are often denied those kinds of positions. Um, what does that then mean about the ways that those prejudices end up working against or denying the very realities of economic disadvantage that is affecting everyone in the African American community, although to different extents. So Chestnut and Grigson are thinking about two of the different kinds of dividing lines that many of the texts examine. One is skin color um, in Chestnut's case. Another is labor in the case of Griggs. Mm -hmm. And uh, going back to Chestnut for just a moment, you um, raised the, um, the subject of passing in relationship to class when you discuss um, Chestnut. Can you talk a, a bit about class passing? Mm -hmm. um, well, passing, I think, has become a concept that uh, is very versatile that people now think about or different scholars have thought about passing in terms of transvestiture um, and thinking about sexuality and thinking about class 
passing from one gender to another, passing from one skin color to another, or at least racial category to another, um, of um, being understood as black or as white. And so what I examine here is class passing in terms of African Americans within their own communities who understanding the boundaries between classes there needed some way to almost infiltrate uh, the citadels <laughs> of the black elite. Mm -hmm. uh, and so chestnut stories are often about uh, trickster characters who think about ways that they need to be able to mobilize from maybe working class to middle class or middle class to upper class by passing themselves off as having a better lineage or more cultural capital than we ordinarily would think. Um, I talk in one story, for example, about that's called The Wife of His Youth, about a character named Mr. Ryder who has moved from one place to another and has made his way into the black elite, but only by not making it clear that in one at one point in his life he had been a servant and that he had been married to a woman who was a slave. And he understands the way that the black elite might look down on that kind of genealogy. And so his passing isn't so much about changing skin color as we would think about in a novel like Nella Larson's passing of, of um, a woman of African descent passing herself off as or being understood as white, but rather as a person who is from a more humble background passing himself off as having always been privy to certain kinds of class privileges and necessarily belonging among the black elite. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think of a, a one of my favorite lines in uh, Mayor of Tradition um, in this regard, when Dr. Miller uh, is being asked to uh, go sit in the in the second class car, in the baggage car, essentially, and he says, but I've played first class fare. And mm -hmm. of course, paying first class fare makes no difference um, in the context of, of Jim Crow segregation. Can you talk about the ways in which Jim Crow segregation um, has given rise to the class anxiety that you're reading in these texts? In the passage that you're referring to, and this is from Chestnut's novel, The Marrow of Tradition, an African-American doctor named Mr. Miller has been relegated to the Jim Crow car, and he ends up thinking to himself, Jim Crow really doesn't make very much sense. He ends up being one of the few black passengers for a while in that train car by himself, and he's thinking it would be a lot better even financially for the company if I, as one passenger, could simply be with the white passengers and there would be no reason to have the whole car trailing along that would be Uh-oh, hello? Hello? Uh-oh. 
seems, at least to him, less logical than classifying by class. He thinks about how he, in that case, would have a lot more in common with some of the white middle class characters who are, or passengers who are reading their medical journals, reading magazines, and so on, rather than eating chicken in the second um, class car or talking about their work on farm. Um, many of the black passengers who get in are farm laborers and so on. And so in that moment of being on the train car, which is its own kind of signifier of mobility and of change and yet of stagnation, um, Miller is thinking about how Jim Crow and the separation of black and white has made it especially difficult for people like him who feel as though they are in between black and white in some ways because of the way that their class status intensifies um, their experience of, of uh, disadvantage or of discrimination. So I think that there is no coincidence that many of the texts that I read in Dividing Lines are written in that period around the 1890s when, as I said, Jim Crow laws are coming into um, are being codified and African Americans are thinking about, well, what are some other ways besides race that we could organize um, communities, that we could organize American society? Um, what are some other ways that we can think about what the essential differences or even the superficial differences between Americans seems to be? Um, and part of the response among certain African American leaders was that class should be one of those ways that Americans thought more provocatively about their distinctions, about their social affiliations, rather than race, which seemed so, um, one had no decision-making uh, power for the most part in whether you ended up being black or white, but you did have some kind of agency or control perhaps over class, and for that reason, many leaders thought the class should be a more relevant uh, show of uh, how classes, I'm sorry, how um, American society should be divided. Mm -hmm. uh, would you please read something from the book for us? Sure. Um, I'd like uh, to talk a little bit more um, about something that we mentioned earlier with um, Addie Jewell raising this issue of why um, class anxiety was so prominent among African-American readers. Because one of the things I want to emphasize here and that um, your segue in talking about Dr. Miller um, and Jim Crow allows me to do is to emphasize that these conversations that African-Americans are having over class isn't simply about a kind of social status that says, uh, I have more money than you do, or I have a nicer house than you do. So it's not what we would conventionally or con contemporarily call just about the bling. It isn't just about a uh, kind of show, but rather that they necessarily thought that being middle class or behaving in certain kinds of ways was evidence of their preparedness for citizenship. Mm -hmm. That against arguments that said that African Americans were inferior, that African Americans did not deserve to vote, that African Americans did not deserve equality, black leaders, whether um, church leaders or church um, women who are organizing and rallying or authors themselves, 
want to often put up evidence of how much African Americans have achieved, of how well-mannered African Americans are. Now, I think that from our vantage point in the 21st century, we can also identify the ways that even this strategy has its limits, that it seems to be playing very much into the argument that one needs some proof of your rights or of your qualifications for rights as opposed to having them given as being inalienable. Mm-hmm. Um, but in this particular moment, that was an important part of their political strategy in being able to point to class distinctions as evidence of how much African Americans were capable of and how much they already have achieved, even though many blacks had their own concerns about that. So with that, I'll read a little bit um, about the kinds of concerns from one reader named Addie Hamilton-Jewell from Boston, and she, again, is responding to Pauline Hopkins' book called Contending Forces. In a private letter written to a friend in January 1900, Boston club woman Addie Hamilton-Jewell criticized what she considered a controversial subject in Pauline Hopkins' new novel, Contending Forces. Jewell had heard Hopkins read from the forthcoming novel, but she did not object to its themes of lynching, concubinage, and miscegenation, topics one would expect to offend a genteel audience at the turn of the 20th century. Instead, what Jewell found most incendiary about the new novel was Hopkins' depiction of contentious class relations among African Americans. By featuring women cattily competing at a church fair in one chapter, contending forces revealed what Jules considered a feeling of opposition between blacks, and these are her words, on a lower scale and other blacks on the so-called higher plane. In Jules's opinion, the novel risked damaging the public, Im- the public image of black Americans who needed to appear united in the cause of racial advancement. Jewel says, I'm forced to condemn the chapter and protest against it as calculated to retard the work that Hopkins aims for securing our rights as American citizens and the protection of the law. Implicit in Jewel's critique is the premise that when representing intraracial class relations, African American authors needed to mind all the possible audiences and political, political resonances of their writing. Though Hopkins had read publicly for the all-black audience of the Colored National League, a civil rights advocacy group, her reviewer feared that when published, the novel would also circulate among white readers who might misinterpret it. If contending forces showed black people discriminating among themselves, Jewel thought, then readers of the Caucasian race who, as she says, are ever on the lookout for flaws in our character might feel justified in their own prejudice against blacks. Jewel remained on guard against the racist logic that would interpret individual flaws within black communities as yet one more strike against the entire race. 
Importantly, however, she did not object to interracial class differences entirely. Rather, she recommends that when Hopkins revises her book, she should include a sequel, another chapter, to show that African Americans on the higher plane, presumably like Jewel herself, were always respectful in their manner, she says, when dealing with those that they considered their inferiors. Missing the irony of her own self-interested protestations, Jewel proposes that a literary portrayal of the harmony in black communities rather than a scene of racial infighting could show that African Americans were model citizens worthy of full participation in American society. Addie Jules's letter opens this book and echoes throughout it because her sentiments, rich with anxious contradictions, keenly identify postbellum African American literature as a prime medium that inscribes and in many cases exacerbates black Americans' uneasy concern over class differences among them. Like Addie Jewell, on one hand, African Americans who promoted racial uplift questioned whether class antipathies among them might compromise their collective protests for political rights. On the other, African Americans emphasized class differences to show that their race could produce representative middle and upper classes distinguished from the uncultured figures who stood for black people in most Americans' imaginations. Both these stances aimed to refute racial prejudice, but they carried different implications for how authors such as Pauline Hopkins and her literary contemporaries chose to represent black communities in their fiction. From the vantage point of postbellum black creative writers and their readers, we can derive an account of the intersections of race and class. Very nice. Thank you so much, Andrea. Very nice reading as well. Thank you. Can you uh, just tell us a little bit about uh, uh, Du Bois and the way in which you're ending the book by talking about his uh, famous, talented Tenth Discussion? Um, the book covers uh, a number of works by black authors between about 1880 and leading up to 1903. And one of the reasons that I uh, liked Du Bois's works from 1903 as his point of kind of passing off the torch uh, to the 20th century is because Du Bois is one of those writers who played a number of different roles. He was both a fiction writer and one of the first academically trained sociologist. And many of the works that I examine throughout the book are interested in thinking about how um, really sociology is only being um, made into a formal academic field in the 1890s. That's when we're starting to have some of the first sociology departments in American universities. So otherwise, the work of kind of thinking through these issues of class, of political economy, had been shared among a number of different people in communities, whether preachers or teachers or reformers, or in this case, activists and authors. And so Du Bois provides that perfect point of being both author and academic in thinking through issues of class. Um, du Bois's 1903 piece, uh, The Talented Tenth, suggests that there should be an educated 
higher class or cadre of um, black Americans who are responsible for mobilizing African-American communities through lending their brain power to thinking about ways to overcome um, disadvantage and social injustices. And I think that in many ways, this has become both a famous paradigm for class relations, but also an infamous one. Um, because inherent in some of that uh, understanding that, as um, I would say, the Black Women's Club movement had the motto, lifting as we climb, that goes along with this talented tenth idea that there would be some women and some men who would be the lifters and others who would be the ones lifted. Um, and within that, there is a certain kind of perhaps condescension in not being able to think about how working class people would have either resented um, that condescension or were organizing and mobilizing on their own. Um, and so the voices, the talented tenth allows for us to think about how African Americans from these different positions of um, formal educators to everyday people to authors were all thinking about what the relationship should be between um, working class and middle class or, or higher class people. I think, though, too, that Du Bois's work allowed for me to think about um, the ongoing conversations about class and black community that we might know even in our present moment. Mm -hmm. um, one of the kinds of parallels that I see, for example, uh, between the conversations during that time and this one is that a, a few years back, maybe um, in 04, 05 or so, um, Bill Cosby made a number of public comments about the greater social responsibility that he thought that certain groups of African Americans should take, and that was his famous or to some infamous uh, speech about the pound cake, about how some African Americans were being criminalized over what he thought of as petty um, thefts and so on. And I, I um, think about Michael Eric Dyson's reply to that in the title of his book that says, is Bill Cosby right or has the black middle class lost its mind? <laughs> and and I, I think about how that kind of question of should we have certain people who are representing and speaking for the entire black community or is there a certain kind of presumption among the black middle class in taking those representative roles end up being the, the exact kind of questions that were going on in that 19th century period about should the talented tenth be tapping themselves as the ones to speak for African Americans altogether or was there a certain kind of presumption inherent in that and again those are ongoing questions that seem to be going on in um, African-American culture, I would say, about who's, who is the public face of black community, and is there even such a thing as a coherent black community, or is there more diffusion, is there more diversity, is there more difference or even anxiety um, that differentiates black Americans into different categories, different classes in our um, contemporary culture? Mm -hmm. Andrea, we've enjoyed talking to you, and I know that I've taken up uh, quite a bit of your time, but can you tell us what you're working on now? I'm currently working on a new project, uh, tentatively called Unmarried Misfits, 
single women and racial crisis in African-American literary culture. And this uh, study is interested in how the single black woman has become a kind of a representative figure for a lot of concerns in African-American communities, and I would say even in larger American community. So from the uh, figure of the uh, welfare queen, as it's been termed by some, who is presented in very pathological language, to even the uh, black professional single woman who is presented as overeducated. Um, there's this concern about what are we going to do about marriageable or unmarried African American women and um, what responsibility do they bear to their black communities, both as child givers and, and, and child rearers and as um, laborers and so on. Again, I'm starting the same process in looking back to an earlier time period to think about when those same issues were going on. And it happens that both of the female authors, or at least two of the major two female authors that I address in Divining Lines, were either never married or were married for a very brief time in their lives before being widowed. And this made me start to think about the role that African American American women have played as authors, as major um, outlets and readerships. If we think about the boon in the 1990s of black women's club movements and book clubs, um, and just tracing the long trajectory of what black culture has had to say about this fixation on African American single women. Very nice. We look forward to reading that as well. Thank you so much, Andrea, for joining us on New Books in African American Studies. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Andrea Williams about her new book, Dividing Lines, Social Class Anxiety and Postbellum Fiction, published by the University of Michigan Press, 2013. If you haven't already got your copy, please go out and get yours today. <laughs>